Welcome to Him We Proclaim, a podcast devoted to the preaching ministry of the Mount Church. Know that the following sermon is specifically intended to build up our local church in Clemson, South Carolina. Feel free to listen along and distribute what you hear, while prioritizing what we pray is the faithful preaching ministry of the healthy local church to which you meaningfully belong. With that, all grace to you as you listen to this episode of Him We Proclaim. Let me invite you to open your Bibles to the very end of John chapter 2. This morning we're going to be reading, beginning in verse 23 all the way through verse 8. We're going to be dealing with the first half of Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. So picking up in verse 23, John writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Now when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Would you pray with me? Lord, I do pray that you would help us this morning. We are in great need of it. We come in all of our our weakness, even in fear and trembling, And we look to you. We look to you for help. It is your word. And so we just want to pray this morning that you would come and you would do what only you can do. That you would cause any here this morning who have not yet believed in Christ to be born again. 
And for anyone who has been born again, I just ask that you would help our hearts to leap for joy at the reality of grace. The, the supernatural resurrection power of God that, he, that has, by mercy alone, come to make us new people. Please help us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, when it comes to the Bible, there are texts and there are texts. It's all God's Word and all alike valuable then as divinely authoritative truth. But in some places, the air is sweeter, the scenery is, is richer, the conversation more immediately vital and, and nourishing and lasting. And then the, the, the terrain through it then, all the more necessary for us to engage. And to me, uh, these words of Jesus to, to Nicodemus fit that kind of bill. Uh, they are some of, if not the most critical in the whole Bible. Uh, here in Christ, God speaks to what is essential for entering His kingdom. Uh, if you truly believe, if you would truly be saved and receive eternal life, we need to hear that all of that, faith, salvation, eternal life, it really does exist, it all exists for us to receive. But if we would receive it, you must be born again. There's no other way about it than the sovereign gift of God that we call the new birth. And so friends, uh, salvation in the most true and biblical sense is more impossible than we can imagine. It is a divine miracle that is nevertheless a must for us. What does Jesus say again to Nicodemus here? You must be born again. And the hope today, whether you are or aren't, is that Jesus Himself will teach us about this heaven-down, eternity-critical reality, and that it will leave its intended mark upon every single one of us. So, let's begin at verse 23, where John sounds a necessary alarm. It's this reality of an unbelieving faith in Christ. You see there, we haven't left Passover. That's still the setting, and you recall, uh, after he's cleansed the temple, how they asked for a sign to confirm the authority that he there displayed. And, well, see now that while he gave them, those folks that asked for the sign, nothing but the word of the cross and the empty tomb, he has been doing signs in plural. And we are told that seeing these signs, get ready to celebrate, many believed in His name. Which we think would be cause for joy. What has John already said in John chapter 1 verse 12? He said that to all who received Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. But... But, what if there's a belief in His name that's only a superficial reception of Him? What if there's a kind of faith in Him that's no true faith in Him at all? 
When Jesus did signs, it was always to support his preaching of the word. It was always to unclog the ears through the eyes for the teaching of the gospel. It was always to guide sinners to Calvary in the hope that they would then have eyes to see the truth, that this crucified man, Jesus of Nazareth, was in fact Christ, crucified and then raised. And so signs were were never an end in themselves, but always a means to trusting Jesus to save us from our sins. And so here we come. We're in our passage here, okay? They are now trusting in Jesus. They have believed in His name. And so what's the problem here? Because there is a problem. It's that their faith, apparently, was only sign deep. It was not Savior. It was faith in the Christ of wonders, water into wine. Who doesn't want to believe in that guy? But it was not faith in the Christ of the Word. They saw His signs and believed in His name, His authority to amaze the masses, but they did not see Him. They did not see who He was and what He would do to save sinners. They had a theology of glory. But they did not have so much a theology of the cross. Fact is, as we go along in the Gospels and Christ's ministry gets harder, His Word becomes more sifting and the cross becomes more foreboding, the crowds get what? Smaller and smaller and smaller. This sort of faith, when all is well and all is novel and fresh and all is popular and all is materially enriching, dies a quick death when things go sideways and cruciform for Jesus. Because in the end and from the first, it was never truly living faith at all. Friends, there is no ivory tower at Calvary. There is a ladder to heaven, but no ivory tower. What are you after? It's like those in the Pilgrim's Progress and one guy named Buy-Ins who, against Christian, it's the main character, Christian, uh, they, they say that they are most zealous when Christianity, quote, goes in its silver slippers. Right? They, they love to walk with Christ in the streets if the sun shines and the people are, woo water and wine. People are applauding. Christian may endure all weather. Christian may hazard all for Christ to the clap. Christian may hold his notions to death, but not us. We wait for wind and tide. We live for life and estate. We go on so long as it's safe and comfortable. Otherwise, the world suits us just fine. We are more than content to claim Jesus until Jesus' cross claims us. But then, if that's the case, have you really believed in Him? We need to be alerted this morning about a kind of faith in Jesus that Jesus Himself discerns as unbelieving. You see the unexpected adversative in verse 24? Right? Again, He says, many believed, many believed, many believed. Hallelujah. Praise Jesus. Not at all. On his all-critical part, Jesus did not entrust himself to that kind of faith 
He did not give the right to them to become the children of God. All that He is and would do to save us, He withheld from that kind of faith in Him. It was not real. It was not saving faith. They may have seen His signs and trusted in Him because of His signs, but Jesus saw their hearts and did not entrust Himself to them. Beloved, it is clear, and we need to hear it, that Jesus was divinely distrusting of a lot of what today we might let pass for true faith. We should see here that while Jesus is wonderfully charitable to such souls, He is also discerning and straight with them. Right? Grace does not compromise truth. Charity does not necessitate that we have to affirm those who are insincere. Jesus cares about the, here's the word, He cares about the credibility of a person's faith in Him. And we should too. But whereas we need a process for attempting to discern this as best as we can... Jesus, you see, simply knew what was in all people. To really parse it out, as I think John means to do, Jesus knew all people and what was in each one of us as part of fallen man and per what follows, even as individuals. As it says of God in 1 Corinthians, or 1 Corinthians, 1 Kings, too much New Testament. 1 Kings 8, 39, uh, and as we've already seen, right, with Jesus and Nathaniel, Jesus knows our hearts. We may be able to deceive other people. But there's no deceiving Jesus. We can claim a faith and we can even put off a kind of faith in Him. But Jesus sees more than our Sunday's best. He knows our true condition. He knows what we need to be told, though we still little believe it, and that is that we are not inherently good people. By nature, we're sinful. We're spiritually dead, is what Paul will say. And that may produce a kind of faith in Jesus, but it is only, at the end of the day, the condemning sword. Case in point, Nicodemus. John's not subtle in tying Nicodemus as an example to that unbelieving faith that he's just narrated for us. You see the very end of the section, the very end of chapter 2, chapter 2, verse 25, Jesus knew what was in man. And then you look, next verse, chapter 3, verse 1, now there was a, a man. There was a man, and we're told a good deal about him. We're told that he was a Pharisee, and back then, that was not like a curse word or something like that, like it might be today. Right? He was a Pharisee. That was a respectable thing. And he's a ruler among them. In fact, Jesus knows him to be the teacher of Israel. The article's there later on in chapter 3. The teacher of Israel. And this biblical or scriptural conservative is quite complimentary of Jesus. You see what he says in verse 2? He addresses Jesus as rabbi. He calls him a teacher. He comes to Jesus as one who's 
thought about Jesus and he's concluded not just that Jesus is on God's side, but that God is actually on Jesus' side. He's come from God and God is with him. And so, this is rarefied air. Nicodemus basically understands Jesus to be at least a true servant of God, perhaps even the likes of a, a Moses. It's incredible. We like Nicodemus, don't we? There's a good chance he'd make some good headway in our membership interviews as a church. We'd hear what he has to say about Jesus, and maybe we'd be inclined to conclude him a converted man, a true believer. But the question is, what about Jesus? Before we go there, I do believe John gives us a clue as to the state of Nicodemus' soul. Some try to dismiss this. I'm not sure the rest of John allows us to do that. Uh, Nicodemus comes to Jesus when? What time of day? He comes by night. And whatever Nicodemus means to achieve uh, by coming at night, John, I think, implies more. The Gospel of John, that is. Uh, the night defining his approach discloses the night that's still abiding in his, his soul. You can approach the light, apparently, without savingly coming to the light. And so this, this may be for convenience, you know, it would uh, erase the crowds and stuff like that. And so there could be a kind of a one-to-one conversation between the two of them. So it may be for convenience, but it almost certainly is also, maybe even secretly, about concealment. Not being seen, not in the light. And friends, I'll tell you, uh, this is one possible sign of an unbelieving faith that it is not exercised in the open. It's not public for Christ. What do we see of Nicodemus later in the gospel? What happens? Jesus is crucified. Who is it that takes him down? Nicodemus is one of them. He goes public for Christ. Okay? So here, he's not there yet. He is not there yet. So, he's conveniently private about it. So I think we can commend this man for coming at all while still alerting him that he is not saved at all. Or at least that's what Jesus does. So let's pick up at verse 3 and hear what Jesus answers this man. Nicodemus, you, yes, even you must be born Again, in his own good as God words, he begins, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And we hear that, and we've heard that before, but have we really? What should we hear? Or first, what, what haven't we heard here? I want you to see, beloved, we do not hear Jesus commend this man. We don't hear Jesus thank him. We see Jesus welcome him in the dark of night. But, but Jesus is not like, oh, Nicodemus, that's all, that's all very kind of you to say about me. And might I say, you, you also have so much going for you. Pharisee, leader, teacher, Bible guy. Some, some keen insight into the mystery of me. Congratulations and welcome to the family. No. He tells that man with all that stuff going for him 
that he is blind to the kingdom of God. Nicodemus can study Scripture all he wants. He can teach Scripture all he wants. He can discern signs all he wants. Say wonderful things about Jesus all he wants. But he cannot as yet at all see the sin that has him on the outs of the kingdom or the Savior who alone can bring him. This man whom I think pretty much everybody else in this day would have counted as a man of God. God incarnate shuts out from the kingdom as he would each one of us on the basis of our first birth. You must be born again. You don't just need a new lease on life. You need a new kind of life in you, which is above and beyond the reach of all that you are, can be, or do by nature. Friends, Jesus is telling Nicodemus that nothing of Nicodemus can give the sight that saves. Not his gene pool. Not his Jewish ancestry. Not his parents' faith. Not his parents' reputation. Not his parents' will. And not his own will. And not his religious pedigree. And not his religious stature. You may have all of that and more, as the Apostle Paul did, and yet, when it comes to the kingdom, be living in the dark of nature's night. Now then, let me say a truly converted person ought to have some formality to their religion. They ought to be a student of the Bible. They ought to be a willing thinker that is well disposed to Jesus. They ought to be a churchgoer, a ready discipler, and a Christ commender. But none of that necessarily means one is absolutely truly converted. Otherwise, we would not be having this conversation in John chapter 3. You see? All that may be in place as it was for Nicodemus, and yet all it does is draw these words from Christ. So sometimes, when it comes to eternal life, we forget that we need to forget all we thought we ever knew. We have to be humbled. I think this was a problem for Nicodemus. Throughout our lives, we build up so much pride of life. Don't you know what I've done and who I am? (laughs) So much pride of life, only to hear Jesus say to our unbelieving hearts, you've got to become an infant again, spiritually, if you would ever enter the kingdom. That's hard. (laughs) That's so hard. Indeed, if as we go forward, we're hearing Jesus rightly, what he deems necessary for salvation is not just hard, but impossible for us. 
Again, our parents can give us a lot of things. Uh, They can give us a lot of advantages towards the truth, but there is no heaven gene that they can pass on. It's not like eye color. Neither they nor we can make light shine out of the natural born darkness of our hearts that we may see so as to be saved. We must be born again. Now on purpose, this is all very earthy. Jesus is trying to move Nicodemus somewhere by what he thinks should be a relatable idea. But, to Jesus' point, how by nature we are sin-ruined and sin-blinded and lifeless, Nicodemus complies. He hears, born again, and what does he say in verse 4? He says, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And while some think Nicodemus can hardly be this obtuse, I'd be quick to point out verse 10, where we see Jesus is not one of those people. As far as Jesus can be amazed... It seems he is fairly so at Nicodemus's spiritual density, obtuseness. And it's not like we don't have precedent for this kind of density, right? Remember last week? Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up again. How do they respond? Uh, it's taken like 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? I'm just saying, you know. The gap in spiritual understanding between the most scripturally studied unbeliever and the newest and youngest newborn soul is the gap between heaven and earth and maybe even hell. It is worlds apart. Jesus is about to allude to the fact that this new birth is all over the Scripture. It's all over the Bible. And the teacher of Israel, whose job it is to preach the Bible, to preach the Scriptures of the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, he knows nothing about the new birth. It makes no sense to him at all. He can't imagine how this can take place. So he goes the only place that unregenerate hearts can go, and that's to the natural. Now, to be fair to Nicodemus, he definitely does get the gist of what Jesus is teaching, that biblical salvation is humanly impossible. He hears him saying, you, not even you, Nicodemus, can save yourself. And he replies, what? Clearly, uh, how can I turn back the clock? Like that. How can I restart my life? Maybe he's thinking, why would I? Again, don't you know who I am? But is there like a a time machine available for this? Can an old man like me get back into my mom's womb, who is herself either ancient or deceased, and be born a second time? In all of that, here's what I want us to see. Nicodemus still thinks... If the impossible must be done, I'm the one. I'm the one who must be able to do it. 
Okay? He has not heard Jesus' condemnation of our nature as being enslaved to sin, and so he hasn't heard what's explicit in what Jesus is saying to him now, that this is the work of God alone. Nicodemus, it's not about you getting back into your mother's womb. It's about divine and supernatural life getting in your soul. It's not you going back to restart your life. For you, it's even more impossible than that. It's the gracious inbreaking of almighty resurrection power where you stand and as you stand an old religious rebel against the truth of the God you say you serve. And notice then how Jesus helps him. He doesn't hear the sound of his marveling silliness and go, man, this guy is hopeless. On to the next. Maybe they'll be better. Because Jesus understands that this is symptomatic of our fallen condition, which he came to cure. So Jesus repeats himself in a way that should have been clarifying. He says... Verse 5, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born, what does it say this time? Of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, we make all kinds of mud pies out of what Jesus meant for clarity. And in the final analysis, I don't know why. But uh, verse 3 and verse 5 are in parallel. So this is not a, a third birth. There's not first birth and then second birth, born again, and then a third birth, born of water and spirit. There, there's not three births going on here. Born of water and spirit is just another way of trying to get at what Jesus means by born again. And as for water here, it's not first about water baptism because Jesus is clarifying, not first for us today, but for a Pharisee back then, Christian baptism was not a thing yet. <laughs> See, And what's more, it can't really refer to John's baptism because John's baptism was already passing away and can hardly then be said to be necessary for entering the kingdom moving forward. So, to what is Jesus alluding? He's alluding to Scripture's understanding of the Spirit's work in the new birth for a man who should have immediately realized it. He's alluding to a passage like Jonathan read for us in the call to worship. Ezekiel 36, 22-28. Hopefully you heard it. This passage that details what God alone will do for His people. Regeneration, born again, new birth, is a promise that God made in speaking about a new covenant. And in a passage like Ezekiel 36, He reveals His desire to create a people for Himself who will well represent His holy name. And to that end, He says, He, God Himself, will cleanse us from all our sin and all our idolatry. And He will take out our heart of stone 
and give us a new heart that is soft towards Him. And He will give us a new spirit. He'll put a new spirit within us so that inside out, we will be divinely changed. So, if you're a believer in Jesus, it's not because of you. It's because of what God, in free and sovereign grace, has done within you. He's raised you from spiritual death to life. He's made the blind to see. You cling to Jesus because God has freed your heart to do precisely that. He's loved you first. And He has entered in. And He's made you His forever. I don't know if you know the name Stephen Furtick, but he kind of made headlines this week for saying this. Following Jesus does not change us into something else. Stephen, you're dead wrong. And he should be avoided. We're following Jesus precisely because God has changed us into something else. Sure, you are what you are still, but Christian, you know you are not who you once were. You're a really new you. And you praise God for that. So about that water then. Jesus only means what Paul will later describe as, quote, the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Or what John the Baptist simply called, you may remember from chapter 1, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. In fact, the rest of our text just drops out water entirely by absorbing it into the focus of the rest of the passage, which is the new birth work of the Holy Spirit. We cannot see or enter the kingdom without the new birth. And we cannot be born again without this most gracious activity of God's Spirit. He's the one who, on the basis of Christ's resurrection and through the preaching or the hearing of the gospel, performs this resurrection of our very souls. You see how Jesus continues? He says in verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is just flesh. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. And so friends, in the first half of that verse, Jesus again condemns the whole world. Who has not been born of the flesh? All of us. Okay? So congratulations You're just flesh. You're a child of Adam. And left in that universal state, you would be shut out of the kingdom. Now again, by the flesh we can maybe create religion, but we cannot create regeneration. By the flesh we can process Scripture, but we cannot be possessed by it. By the flesh, we can be self-righteous, 
but we cannot be holy from the heart. By the flesh, we can come to Jesus, but we will not endure the cross. By the flesh, we we may say nice things about Jesus, but we won't abidingly worship Jesus in spirit and in truth unless we are born, what does he say now? Of the Spirit. Born again, born of water and spirit, born of the Spirit, which is why anyone ever truly believes in Christ. Friends, as Jesus will say, In John chapter 6, the flesh is of no avail in this. Zero. None. It only keeps you out. It is the Spirit, he says, who gives life. You can enter eternal life, as one said, without money. You can enter eternal life without rank. You can enter eternal life without learning. But you cannot enter eternal life without the new birth. God's kingdom is not of this world. And so we mustn't be either if we would be citizens of the kingdom of heaven. You must be born again. That's a great thrust of our Lord's teaching here. We see it's, it's marvelous, apparently, in Nicodemus' eyes. It shouldn't be, but it is. It should be self-evident. And even if it isn't, it is scripturally evident that we need a work of God in our souls to be fit for His kingdom. Right? If we truly know ourselves, we know that the new birth is a must. If we truly know the Word, we know the new birth is a must. If you would enter life this morning, please know the new birth is a must. It is a divine necessity. And it is a sovereign mercy of God. Thank God for it. In the final verse for now, what does Jesus emphasize but the sovereignty and the visibility of the Holy Spirit in this work? And while many find very little joy, maybe even no joy, in it, I I honestly cannot rejoice enough. (laughs) Now, if we think that we are good people with the spiritual ability to cooperate with God in saving ourselves effectually and others, you may not like what Jesus has to say. But beloved, if we understand our natural depravity, if we understand our actual condition apart from the new birth, if we understand our utter inability to see or enter glory by Christ, again, as Jesus has taught us here, we will learn to rejoice in the sovereign mercy of the Holy Spirit in bearing children for God. We won't think, then why doesn't He just do it for everybody? We'll think, why has He done it for me? Oh man. Why does He do it for anybody? And I'd hope we think, bless God, because the dead can be raised. Because we can't do it. Only He can. Sinners can be saved. Really? You believe that? What's impossible for us is possible with God. 
I believe it was Charles Spurgeon who commenting on the Spirit's sovereignty in this said this. It means that anyone, anywhere, who has ever heard the gospel once can this very hour be born again. Nothing at all. Not the greatest sinfulness, Paul. Not a great lack of hearing, nor the hardness of hearing so much. No time constraint as with the thief on the cross, nor the simplicity of youth. Nothing can fend off the Spirit when the Spirit moves to do this. It's like a sudden rush of wind. Jesus says. See verse 8. It blows where it wishes. Sovereignty. And, note, you hear the sound of it, visibility. But you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. (laughs) So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And so however we may wish we could, we can't really harness the Holy Spirit. We cannot... uh, channel his, his power. We can't, we can't control Him. We can't reverse engineer the new birth. right? Uh, we, we do this and we do that and the Holy Spirit will come. And there will be great awakening. We'd have a better chance of taking hold of a sudden gust to relieve a desert of its dryness. But, I want you to hear, we do know Him who does collaborate with this wind. And he's told us to pray. And he has told us to preach. And he has told us to fast. And he has told us to teach. And he has told us to serve. And he has told us to love. And he has told us to plant. And he has told us to water. And he has told us to pray some more. And he has told us don't ever give up. Don't grow weary in well-doing, and He will give the growth. So we just put up the sails, and then we wait and rejoice when the wind blows. And when He does, when He gives new birth, how gloriously visible and evident it is. Not everybody does, but I remember when I was born again. <laughs> uh, I was 17 or 18 years old. Can't remember exactly, okay. But uh, I followed a girl. She invited me, and I thought she was cute, and so I, I went with her. And I was sitting off on the left side of the sanctuary to the preacher's right. And he was just preaching Christ, preaching the cross. <sighs> it just exploded. Like I came completely unhinged and alive to Jesus. I went out that day saying, I don't know what happened. I know I came here after you, but, but it turns out Jesus was after me. <laughs> and I, he went in an old creature and came out a new one. And I said that, and I never read 2 Corinthians 5.17. <laughs> and I've never been the same old me since, praise Jesus. <laughs> a profound event. 
It absolutely and radically changes us. It's death to life. It's dark to light. It's resurrection. Lazarus, come forth. It comes out. It's Paul on his way to murder Christians, only on his way to become a Christian himself. It's finding the garrison demoniac suddenly sitting in his right mind at the feet of Jesus, ready to preach Christ to all the world. It's my beloved sister. He would tell you, she was all kinds of messed up. Coming to me after hearing the gospel and saying, I'm ready, I want to follow Jesus. It's a girl I read of just the other day who was, by her own admission, a gothic and atheistic devil worshiper with a life full of lying and cheating and swearing and fornicating and drunkenness and drugginess and all manner of sinful toxicity. Here are her words. I was born again by the Holy Spirit who led me to Jesus and instantly turned my whole heart and life around. But alas, it's also the Nicodemuses. It's the quote-unquote good people who trust in their goodness coming to see the sinfulness even of that so that they cast themselves entirely as Nicodemus will upon the mercy of Christ crucified and raised. That is the first sure sign of the new birth. It's what Jesus will emphasize for Nicodemus as we go along next week. At all costs, it is, I've got to get away from my sin and I've got to trust in Jesus. I've got to repent and I've got to believe in Him as if my eternity depends upon it because my eternity does actually depend upon it. It's treasuring Christ above everything so that you walk with Him in the light of life no matter the cost. So unbelieving friend, if you would enter the kingdom of God, you must be born again. And it's all our prayer that you would be born again right now as I tell you that Jesus was crucified and raised so that there is for you salvation with God and call you then to repent of your sins and to really entrust your souls to Jesus. If you're curious about where the new birth immediately leads you, I would just encourage you uh, to, to come back next week where we'll finish Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. Beloved, the Lord is our salvation. And how we ought to rejoice in the grace that's taught us so. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost 
but now I'm found, was blind. But now I see. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Let's pray together. You are so kind to us, Lord. (laughs) Infinitely kind. And so we pray now that you would, again, work in the hearts of any here who have not yet been born again, that they would be, and that their hearts would now be flooded with peace and joy in believing Christ. And please help us as a body to continue to not only have joy in grace ourselves, but just to be so encouraged that you are in the business of resurrecting souls. We ask this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.